Tonight we come to look at Psalm 82. And the words are on the screen. God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth. For all the nations are your inheritance. We come tonight to the last of our series in praying the Psalms. And we come to Psalm 82. It's only really the last verse in this psalm, which is a prayer addressed to God. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth. For all the nations are your inheritance. It's hard to read this as anything other than a prayer for political change. A plea for God to set up his kingdom, to take charge, to bring an end to any system of government that could be described as dysfunctional or unpredictable or faction-riven, diplomatically clumsy or inept, uh, to quote words that were used by Sir Kim Dalla reasonably recently of the administration in the United States. America is divided, deeply so, over Donald Trump, what kind of president he is, whether he is good or whether he is bad. There's a concern as well that in this country we are becoming increasingly polarised in terms of what direction we should be going in, what our political leaders are doing. We will have a new Prime Minister come Wednesday. There will be those who are convinced that he's the right man for the job. There will be those who are convinced he's just a British version of Donald Trump. Uh, and and view that with dismay. It is a cause for concern, actually, that although this person will have been elected by the majority of the Conservative Party, the majority of the country will view him with a great deal of suspicion and uncertainty. We live in uncertain times entering uncharted waters, and we wait to see whether those who are convinced that he's the man for the job will be right, or whether actually we're going down a very wrong path indeed. Time will tell. What's clear from Psalm 82 is that the Bible doesn't offer any uncritical support for the political status quo, whoever it is that happens to be in charge. And Israel knew that as a result of bitter experience. They'd had a whole succession of bad kings in their history, and they were all too well aware of how easy it is for rulers to be characterised by corruption and incompetence rather than by transparency and justice. So there is here in this psalm an indictment of the political powers. There is a call that they should set about the task of defending the cause of the weak and fatherless. 
The rights of the poor and oppressed should be maintained. The weak and the needy should be rescued. That people should be delivered from the hands of the wicked. In his commentary on this psalm, Eric Sanger draws attention to how the description of people as needy and marginalised in this psalm refers actually to the vast majority of people in ancient Near Eastern and Israelite society. These aren't people who've been impoverished or disempowered by a specific misfortune, such as orphans and widows. Instead, these are the mass of small farmers, artisans, day labourers, all the little people who struggle to make ends meet in contrast to the ruling class and the great landowners. And the prayer that we find in the psalm is that the existing political systems, because of their fundamental structures of injustice, might be changed so that the broad masses might experience lawfulness and justice, that they might be delivered from the hand of the wicked, that is, from oppression, from expropriation, from degradation, all the things they suffer at the hands of the ruling and ownership classes. This psalm addresses structural sin, the way in which injustice somehow has been woven into the very fabric of a nation and asks for God to change that. It is more than just a prophetic indictment of of the political leaders because when God speaks, he doesn't address the, the political rulers, but rather it looks like he's speaking to other deities. The images of God presiding in the pantheon, giving judgment amongst the lesser gods accusing them of defending the unjust. They are the ones who've lifted up the face of the wicked. They are the ones who've shown partiality to the people who can pay the biggest bribe or who wield the greatest degree of power and influence. They are the ones who've turned justice into injustice in the courts of the law. And it's to these gods that the psalm is addressed. As the Lord tells them, you've got to defend the weak. You're supposed to be maintaining human rights. You are supposed to rescue and protect the powerless from the wicked. But the call to justice is ignored. The ruling powers are deaf and blind. They know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness as they blunder about the foundations of the earth are shaken. And because of the chaos that ensues, the Lord passes judgment on them. Since you have confused and ravaged everything through your arbitrary rule, you shall fall and die, no differently than if you were only a flesh and blood human being. These gods are no better than sinful human beings in terms of the way in which they are governing the world. And so, like sinful human beings, they will perish because the Lord will judge them and they will die like mere men. It's quite a a different image, actually. We're we're good monotheists. Uh, We believe there is one God and and no other kind of deity can challenge God. And we're taken a bit aback by this picture of God kind of presiding in a kind of pantheon of other gods and addressing them as gods. What's going on here? Does the psalmist use the imagery of the Lord addressing other gods to bring vividness, actually, to a challenge to earthly administrations? 
Or does the psalmist actually believe that behind the human institutions there are spiritual powers that influence and manipulate the political authorities? One commentator puts it this way. God's judgment of the gods has its parallel in God's judgment of unjust human officials. The gods, as patrons of the various nations, were responsible for the type of kings, judges and officials they appointed and empowered. Their will is administered by human agents who are extensions of the divine presence in earthly affairs. Thus the judgment of the gods is at the same time a judgment of their human agents. Sometimes you look at countries or regions or towns and cities and and the corruption the incompetence, the violence, the injustice just seem to be so endemic and entrenched. Different leaders come and go, nothing seems to change. Months turn into years, into decades. They seem stuck where they are. This way of thinking about spiritual power suggests that there are spiritual realities behind what goes on on the ground. And the way in which we engage them is prayer. There's a big prayer movement based on the idea of waging spiritual warfare against territorial spirits which govern regions and countries. The idea being that once the spiritual battle has been won in prayer, change on the ground is bound to follow. Well, with an L, were they here, they'd have a kind of DVD that they could make available called Transformations, which tells some remarkable stories about how situations have been changed through prayer. Peter Wagner has written extensively on this. He cites the example of the Argentinian pastor, Omar Cabrera, who prepares the spiritual ground for planting a new church by shutting himself alone in a room in prayer and fasting. Usually takes the first two or three days to allow the Holy Spirit to cleanse him, help him dissociate himself and to identify with Jesus. He feels he leaves the world and is in another realm where the spiritual warfare takes place. The attacks of the enemy at times become fierce. He's even seen some spirits in physical form. His objective is to learn their names and break their power over the city. Usually takes five to eight days, but sometimes more. Once he spent 45 days in conflict. But when he finishes, people in his meetings are frequently saved and healed, even before he preaches or prays for them. The Jew is out a bit on this kind of approach to prayer and the whole existence of these spiritual powers. Some people fervently believe that this is the key to breaking the the negative control that powers have over regions or cities or, or, or uh, countries, others aren't quite sure actually that there's a good scriptural basis for it. But Psalm 82 here talks about addressing the gods and holding them accountable for injustices that happen here on earth. Walter Wink is a Methodist theologian and he, he says we should take the language about the existence of such powers seriously. Thrones might represent powers located in symbolic places that outlast each individual human incumbent. Dominions are the regions over which thrones hold sway, a sphere of influence. Rulers are not the individuals as such, but the persons in office, while the authorities or powers are legitimations and sanctions by which rulers maintain their control. These powers were created by God, to do a job of governing under his sovereignty, but they're fallen. They've become subject to corruption, and as such they're flawed, compromised, 
And sometimes it deteriorated to the point where the patterns, structures, systems, institutions, ideologies, ways of thinking have effectively become demonic. And these things gain power when we blindly give our loyalty to any kind of political system or ruler and follow it right or wrong because we are swept along by the ideology or or by the popularism or because they offer a simplistic solution to all the problems that we encounter. And when we do this, we effectively endue that power or that authority with the kind of loyalty and allegiance that really should be due to God alone. God alone is the only one that we offer that kind of fundamental commitment and loyalty to. And if we give that commitment and loyalty and faith and trust to any other power, there is something idolatrous in that. And we give that power more control than is good for us and for it. And so prayer is a resistance against that. Prayer is saying, actually, if I'm going to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, I see that what God wants, God's way of doing things, is at odds with what I'm seeing in the world now. And so I'm not going to give blind assent, blind loyalty to what I see happening around me. I'm going to say, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done. What you want is different to what I'm seeing. So would you bring about change? And Week says those who pray do not do so because they believe certain intellectual propositions about the value of prayer but simply because the struggle to be human in the face of superhuman powers requires it. The act of praying is itself one of the indispensable means by which we engage the powers. It is in fact that engagement at its most fundamental level where their secret spell over us is broken and we are established in a bit more freedom, which is our birthright and potential. Prayer, he says, is the interior battlefield where the decisive victory is first won, before engagement in the outer world is even attempted. Prayer, in short, is the field hospital in which the diseased spirituality that we've contracted from the powers can be most directly diagnosed and treated. Change begins with prayer. This is the context of the concluding prayer in the psalm that God would rise up and judge the earth for all the nations are his inheritance. It's time to strip these failed gods of their franchise, and for the Lord to bring the nations back under his own direct rule, claiming them as his own inheritance. It's a vivid prayer that God's kingdom would come and his will be done. Again, Eric Sager puts it well. Psalm 82 projects in mythic colours a highly dramatic world picture that reveals a world full of injustice and violence, and it laments this upheaval as the consequence of the failure of the gods of the nations. And the psalm sees no other way out than that these gods must disappear from the stage of the heavens and the world so that the Lord, the God of Israel, may become the God of all nations as the saviour of the exploited and impoverished masses. One God, one King, the Lord in charge, overruling for the good of the world and sweeping away the powers that oppose him. So it's a psalm about prayerful protest. What makes you angry when you read the news? What really winds you up? What makes you think, that's not right? 
What are they thinking of? How can they do that? How can that be allowed? What is anyone going to do about that? Where do you see injustice and evil becoming entrenched to the extent that people seem powerless to do anything about it? Psalm 82 says, well, part the veil. See a spiritual conflict going on behind all this. A conflict in which we can play a vital part through prayer. A prayer that the prevailing powers that seem to have assumed control over the world would be broken. Prayer that people of integrity would come to the fore. Prayer that people who work to end corruption, to establish justice, to bring reform, to end exploitation, would be successful. And we may not be these people ourselves, but we can empower them as we pray for them. And we can make a difference for them by preparing the ground through our prayers. So Candy this morning talked about the difference it made actually sending out a prayer letter once a week rather than every six months. Uh, because people praying that much more regularly for her, she believes empowers her in terms of her ministry of releasing people from the mindset that traps them in a criminal lifestyle. For her, prayer has been a major factor in setting people free. So it's not enough when we see, see, see things that are wrong simply to shrug our shoulders and say, what can I do? We can pray. For intercession to be Christian must be prayer for God's reign to come on earth. It must be prayer for the victory of God over disease, greed, oppression and death in the concrete circumstances of people's lives now. And in our intercessions we fix our minds and our wills upon what God might do, what God wants to do, and we find ourselves caught up in the whirlwind of what God does to actualise it. So whenever you open the prey paper, whenever you watch the news, whenever you catch up online with what is going on in the world, in our country, and in our community, our instinctive and effective response should always be to turn to God and pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, as it is in heaven. So on Wednesday we got this prayer meeting to pray for our evangelistic work through our organisations in the big summer. I thought actually that's a bit kind of parochial, given that on Wednesday we will have a new Prime Minister. We'll pray for the new government as well on Wednesday night. Sea change for Britain. So we meet to pray for that too on Wednesday, 8 o'clock here. Join us, if you can, to pray that God's kingdom would come and his will be done in Britain as it is in heaven.